to the scripture, and I ask you to bow with me to pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, be with us to give us ears to hear, um, meaning that you would enable us to believe all that is here in your word, that we might believe it and walk, we pray, with you. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Jeremiah in chapter 39. Jeremiah chapter 39, please. I want to read uh, this uh, chapter. Jeremiah chapter 39. Hear the word of God. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. The eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate, near Garsel Ezer, Samgar Nebu, Sar Zakim, the Rebsaris, Nagal Sar Izar, the Rab Mag, with all, his, all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and all the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him. And the people who remained, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah. Some of the poor people owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm. But deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rebsaris, Nergalsar-Ezer, the Reb Mag, and all the officers of the king of Babylon, sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men whom you are afraid, for I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war. Because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Now we find in the opening verses of this chapter that which we have been anticipating and perhaps even dreading as we begin our look at this 
prophet, anticipating because it's been the theme of Jeremiah's work, his prophetic work about for about 40 years, announcing the destruction of Jerusalem, dreading because we know it's horror and, and, and devastation. Um, Jeremiah's been speaking of this uh, ever since the very beginning. His call he received from God. God said to him that uh, an army from the north was going to come against the city of Jerusalem and take it. So from the very get-go, Jeremiah knew exactly what he was to say to the people, knew exactly what was going to take place, at least eventually. He didn't know when, but he knew it would eventually it would eventually come. These would be a foreign army. This would be people who would speak a different language. He was told there would be destruction in the city. Death would come. Famine would come. It would be devastating. It would be horrible in the city. The kings of this foreign land would set themselves up at the city gate and rule the city of Jerusalem. It would be burned. The city destroyed. People would be killed. People would be exiled. And now that time has come. We see it. Chapter 39, Jeremiah, the armies of Babylon have been sitting outside the the city walls for about 18 months. Beginning early in January of what we would call of 588 B.C. And now it comes that there's a breach in the wall at this point in time. In about July 587 B.C. Now, after, after all of these months, it seems like the siege has worked. Do you remember the strategy of the Babylonians was to stay outside the walls and that would create a certain emotional terror on the people to realize that your enemies are just outside the wall, pecking away at the wall, some way trying to get in. But in the midst of all that, they're keeping all the food from getting in and out. And so you know that eventually you're going to either have to fight, flee, or starve. And so the devastation could be, would be terrible upon them. And this was coming against the city of Jerusalem, as we know, not because they were just politically weak, but because they were spiritually weak, not because they were militarily deficient, but because they were morally deficient. They had turned against God, and this was judgment that was coming against them because of their rebellion, because of their sin. False prophets had been in the land saying, peace, but yet there would be no peace. They were speaking to them a word of, of comfort and ease when in fact they were rebelling against God and rather speaking the, rather than speaking the truth to the people as Jeremiah did, they said, all is well with your soul, all is well within. So, so continue to live as you have. Jeremiah was the only one speaking this real truth, but they followed the false prophets. We know that the fate of the city of Jerusalem had been sealed for some time, but most especially under a king before this, King Zedekiah, under this King Jehoiakim that we considered a couple of weeks ago. You remember that God said to Jeremiah, I want you to write down in a scroll everything that you've been saying to the people over these decades. And so Jeremiah got with his scribe, his, his clerk, uh, Baruch, and he began to dictate to Baruch all that he had spoken. And those they put it together in a scroll, and, and, and Baruch took it to the temple, and he read it to the people, and the people heard it and said, the king needs to hear this. And so they took it to Zedekiah, the king, and you remember what happened there. It was rather reminiscent of the time when the law was found, and it was read to Jehoiakim's dad decades before Josiah. When Josiah heard the word... He ripped his clothes in repentance and revival came to the city and to the nation of Judah. But now as the law was read by Baruch to Zedekiah, he didn't repent. 
didn't rip his clothes. Rather, he took this scroll and he ripped it column by column. And he threw it in the fire so that he could be kept warm. There was no repentance, no revival, but there was rejection of Judah. So the fate was sealed. Then when Jehoiakim became king, he rebelled against the Babylonians. He didn't listen to the word of Jeremiah saying, just surrender and you'll live. This is the work of God. He rebelled against the Babylonians and in so doing still rebelled against the word of God. And there they were outside the city. And now the time had come. It had been devastating. The people were, were weak. In fact, Jeremiah writes a poem about what had taken place in Jerusalem in Lamentations. Chapter 4, we read this. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps goes on to say, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. We mustn't Romanticize, we mustn't skip over that which really took place in history, in Jerusalem, because of the sin, rebellion of the people. And it was before them. You can only imagine what the people in the city must have looked like. You can only imagine what Zedekiah himself was like, though he was king. I'm sure he took as much of the bread for himself as he possibly could. That's the nature of that particular man. Not to give it to his people, but to take it for himself. But still, there was no bread, Jeremiah writes in chapter 52, of in the city. And so how was he? But, but the breach came in the wall, and he, could, he, he knew then that these officials as they were listed here, various officials in Babylon entered into the city to sit by the gates, to, to take command of the city, to take authority of the city. And so Zedekiah, rather than following after God and surrendering and living, rather than following the word of the prophet Jeremiah and surrendering so the city wouldn't be burned, still he thought he could avoid all of that. Still he thought he could live counter to that which was true in the word of God. And so he tried to flee, tried to escape, thinking in his own wisdom and his own strength he could actually get away, but he couldn't. He was caught, he and his sons and other officials that had gone with him. And he experienced a terrible fate himself. Jeremiah had told him over and over again, Zedekiah, if you repent, if you turn from your sin and simply surrender to the Babylonians as God has instructed, then you will live and you will be spared. And he continued to ignore that. And he even said to Jeremiah, I actually fear the people, even our people, what they'll do to me if I actually surrender to the Babylonians. And so rather than to fear God, he feared men. Rather than fear God, he feared even his own people who had been taken into exile by the Babylonians. And so rather than do what God had instructed, he, he fled. And in so doing, he got what he most feared was brutality, really, judgment at the hands of men. <clears throat> And so he was forced to watch 
the execution of his sons. And that would be the last thing he would see, not because they would kill him next, but because they would pluck out his eyes and take him into captivity, if you will. And so that happened to Zedekiah. He couldn't avoid the judgment of God. It was inescapable. And still he rebelled. Now, what are we to make of all of that? This first. That the judgment of God is real and inescapable by our own wisdom and strength. The judgment of God is real and it's inescapable by our own wisdom and strength. It's amazing to me in the days in which we live that there is so little discussion of the judgment that is to come. So, so little discussion of ultimate judgment as if it, it's not really there. We put so much out of our mind. We, we, we sort of live in an ease of life so that we don't have to consider so many ultimate things. But, but this one ultimate thing, this thing of judgment, we've rather put out of our mind. We, we, we don't really discuss it even though evil is rampant in the world. Nobody's really asking, talking about the question, what about all of that evil? Isn't that somehow, isn't there going to be a recompense for that someday? Doesn't somebody have to pay? Isn't isn't somebody going to be punished? Isn't, Isesn't something going to happen? Aren't there really consequences to the evil that seems to be prominent in the world in which we live? Now, I suppose it's in us to be optimists, or at least those who live in denial about what is to come so that somehow we can live as little with as little stress as possible in the course of our lives. But still, no one seems to be talking about that. Seems to be talking about that which is obvious, the evil that's in the world and the consequences that must befall, that must come. Perhaps it's of those who do not believe at all in God and therefore take some measure of comfort by saying, this is it, at the end of this life, that's all that there is. There is no recompense. There is no uh, consequences to be suffered. But, but, but really, think of it. Is that, is that satisfying? Is that comforting to think? And all the evil that takes place in the course of the world that doesn't get dealt with in this life, that that's it? Doesn't that even lead to the logical conclusion of thinking that if I can get away with hurting someone else for my own benefit or being in a group that hurts another for our own benefit, why not? So long as we're not suffering the consequences of that evil. Why wouldn't there be evil for the sake of our good if there are no ultimate consequences? Do we really want that? Is that really satisfying to us to think like that. And there are others who do believe in God, but, but say, yes, I believe in God, but he's a God of love and forgiveness. And this love and forgiveness is incompatible with this kind of judgment. Therefore, at the end of all, all is forgiven and, and God simply loves. But is that satisfying? Is it satisfying to think of a God like that? Would we love and adore and worship and commit to and follow after a being that makes no distinction of good and evil. Who is indifferent to evil. He can simply allow evil to take place and at the end of the day saying, that's all right. All is covered over. All is well. Theologian 
Some note J.I. Packer, in a classic book uh, entitled Knowing God, puts it like this. It says, Why then do we fight shy of the thought of God as judge? Why do we feel the thought to be unworthy of Him? The truth is that part of God's moral perfection is His perfection in judgment. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history, the Hitlers and Stalins, if we dare use names, and His own saints, be morally praiseworthy and perfect? And not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge, to judge the world. And, and perhaps most significant, and I don't know how to put this, the greatest perhaps error of humanity, the greatest mistake in judgment, perhaps we should put it like this, the greatest arrogance is to think that somehow we can conceive of God. To think that somehow we can say, I know God and this is who He is. And and therefore not listen to His own revelation of Himself and not sit in submission to that and say, okay, God, You're God, You're the infinite Holy One. So so tell me about Yourself. I, I can't discern You. I can't figure You out. You have to reveal Yourself to me. Why would we not go to Him and say, please reveal Yourself to us because we cannot know You. I have time this morning to, to lay out why Scripture is that revelation of God, but clearly it is consistent with history as it was in the days of Jeremiah and Zedekiah. Clearly, it has been affirmed by one Jesus of Nazareth. But Zedekiah wouldn't listen to the revelation of God. He had his own conception of God. Surely God won't, won't, won't bring this judgment, at least upon me. God isn't really holy and powerful. I can escape his judgment. I, I, can, I can avoid his wrath. All I have to do is escape these Babylonians who are coming. And surely I'm able to do that. But, but, but he wasn't. He couldn't. God had decreed the judgment to come. He told Zedekiah what was going to happen if he didn't repent. And he didn't repent. And so this is precisely what took place in the life of of Zedekiah. He wasn't able to escape at this judgment, this very judgment of of God is real. It's amazing how in each culture and every time and place people think they know God. And in some cultures and in some times and in some places people see God as a God of judgment. In other times and other places and other cultures they see that, that no, that judgment is incompatible with this God of love. We see even in our own world, in certain parts of the world, God as judge is certainly something that's very embraced. And yet even in our own culture, it's not embraced at all. We think of God as simply love, forgiveness, and all is well. That there's peace when perhaps there is no peace. Isn't what is always said at funerals when we attend them, regardless of who it is, regardless of their faith, to hear words like, well, I'm glad he or she is now in a better place. Really. That he or she now has peace. Really. Upon what basis do we say that? It's on the basis of a conception of God. Whatever we think about God, and and is this really true of Him? And how do we know that? 
Because, you see, we're banking ultimately on that conception of God, which we believe, which we hold. And the question is, is that true? Is that right? Is that really true of God? It wasn't for Zedekiah. He missed it. He didn't listen to the revelation of God that came. And thus... All throughout the scripture, we read about God who is Judge Abraham announced him as such. He said, God, you are the judge of all the earth. We, we see that in the history that we read through the scripture. We see it in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, the judgment that came upon them because of their, of their sin. We see it in the days of Noah, the judgment that came upon the world because of the sin of the world. We, we see it even in Egypt as the Egyptians have enslaved the people of God, the Israelites, and, and judgment comes upon them and these plagues that come and even as the Pharaoh's armies drown in the Red Sea, we see judgment coming upon even Israelites in the wilderness because of their lack of faith not yet to go into the promised land to wander in this wilderness time for 40 years we, we see it even as, as the earth opens up to, to capture and to judge those who have been grumbling against God and against his leader Moses we see it in the days of the judges where God simply judges the people because it is said of them that every person did what was right in their own eyes. We see it in the northern kingdom just a hundred years or so before the time in which we're reading now to before the time of Jeremiah. We see that the northern kingdom was destroyed just as God had said because of sin. And now even we see it in the days of Jeremiah as the Babylonians are at the gate, as the Babylonians come in, as the Babylonians burn the city. We see God as this one who is judge and as we come to the new testament it simply frankly intensifies some think that this new testament god is not the same old testament god if you will somehow that god became a christian in the new testament Um, but he's the same god in fact even as Jesus speaks, he speaks of this wrath of God. For instance, in the classic text of which everyone knows, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. This whole perishing, this whole thing of judgment. In fact, Jesus comes and he speaks of himself so identified with God, God in the flesh is he, that he says of himself that now he is the judge. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He uh, does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of life, of judgment, and so this judgment is real, Jesus says, and inescapable. Jesus spoke of it very often. In fact, even in his parables, for instance, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 41, in this parable of the weeds as it's known by us, Jesus says this, 
The Son of Man will send his angels and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, Jesus, we read in, in, in Matthew chapter chapter 16 and uh, verse 27, uh, Jesus speaking, he says this, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he'll repay each person according to what he's done. And then the classic, of course, in Matthew chapter 25 speaks of the Son of Man coming, and he speaks of, of this judgment uh, where sheep and goats will be separated. Sheep, those who belong to him. Goats, those who don't. And he puts it like this, verse 40. He says, And the king will answer them, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine. Uh, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those of his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then verse 40, 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. The apostles continued this theme, really, of judgment. As, as they began uh, their preaching, they, they spoke of that judgment which, which was to come. Uh, of Jesus, even. The apostle Paul speaks like this, Acts chapter 10, verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. I mean, part of the gospel message, part of this this message of good news is this message of bad news. And and in order to take that message, what did Jesus tell them? He says, now remind them, make sure they know that I'm the one who's been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. When Paul speaks to those in in Athens, he he speaks this word concerning Jesus uh, as well. And he says to, to, uh, to, those, to those there of Jesus, he says, The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He says, This Jesus, this is the one who will judge all the earth. The Apostle Paul, is, as he writes, speaks of this judgment as well. Chapter 5 of Second Corinthians, verse 10. He says, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. He writes, Paul does, to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he speaks, some, uh, speaks to Timothy of what Timothy is to preach. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. The author of of Hebrews picks this theme as well in chapter 9, verse 27. He says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then, of course, the revelation of John. As John receives this revelation of Jesus, is packed with passages that speak of this final judgment. Chapter 19. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments 
are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his, of his servants. And then, of course, in chapter 20, verse 11, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were opened then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done and the sea gave up the dead who were in it death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then, the very end, chapter 22, verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. This judgment is real. And it is inescapable. It is indeed to come, to come as Jesus as Jesus will come. And the question is then, is there any real help here? Is there any real escape um, from all of this? Well, there's one who escaped. There's one who escaped and his name was Ebed-Melech, which means the servants of the king. Now, Jeremiah escaped, but, but that's not so... Uh, surprising to us. We, we would have expected that. Jeremiah had received promises from God that he would indeed be spared. But notice in Jeremiah chapter 39 and verse 15, we read this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good. That is, I'm going to destroy the city. And they shall be accomplished before you on that day. In other words, you'll see it. And he was seeing it right then. But I will deliver you, that is to Ebed-Melech, God says, I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you're afraid. For I will surely save you, you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war. In other words, you'll live, Ebed-Melech. Now why? Why in the midst of all of this destruction was this particular man singled out so that he would not die? That, that he wouldn't be judged in the same way that Zedekiah was. Why is it that the servant of Zedekiah wouldn't be killed? Now, this isn't the first time in Jeremiah that we run across this guy, Ebed-Melech. He actually shows up in chapter 39, 38. That situation is this. Uh, Jeremiah had been preaching, got in trouble, was thrown into a cistern, a place where they stored water. Now, that would be a dangerous place in normal times to be thrown into. But since they were in the midst of a famine, there was no water in it. And so it was just muddy. And so he ended up in the mud of this cistern. Now, the intent of those who threw Jeremiah into this cistern was that he would stay there long enough to die, to starve to death. They weren't going to feed him, take care of him. But Ebed-Melech servant of Zedekiah, risked his position, no doubt even his life, and interceded on the behalf of Jeremiah. He went to the king, he went to Zedekiah, and he said, we got to get Jeremiah out of here, he's going to die. 
And Zedekiah, for whatever reason, could have been some measure of affection, of the loyalty of his servant Ebed. I guess we could be on a first hyphenated basis with him. Uh, and uh, he, 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 he said, all right, go get him. And so Ebed took some of his friends and they went and they got Jeremiah out. Now you might think that the next part of this expression is that Ebed Melech, because you were faithful, because you were heroic, because you were sacrificial, because you risked your life for the sake of my servant Jeremiah, you'll be spared. But that's not the basis upon which Ebed Melech was spared. God says this, you'll have your life as a prize of war because you've put your trust in me. See, Ebed-Melech did what he did because he trusted in God. He wasn't trusting in himself. He wasn't trusting in Zedekiah. He wasn't trusting in Zedekiah's kindness or any of that. He was trusting in God in the same sense that, he, that all of saints go before uh, God and even take risks in the theater of the earth is because they trust God, that God will take care of them in whatever way God just so desires. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the same era. It would be a, a bit later, but, but they, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, would find themselves in a position of having to go against the king. And they went against the king because they trusted God. And they said to Nebuchadnezzar that no matter what happens to us, we're still not going to bow down to you, no matter if our God delivers us or not. He can, but if he doesn't, still... We're not going to bow down. And why did they say that? They said that because they trusted in God, because they knew, they knew God. So Ebed-Melech trusted in God. It was real faith, real trust, real resting in God. It was dangerous. I hear the words of Jesus sort of echoing in my head, count the cost. Do you know when Jesus said that we're to count the cost, he didn't mean that go ahead and count the cost. There are various alternatives. Following me is pretty costly. But if you don't want to, then take the next best alternative. Like a student's advisor may say, well, you can major in physics, but you know it's really hard. There's something else you can major in and count the cost. No, no. It isn't that there's a viable alternative. It isn't that to follow me or there's something second best. It isn't even to... Ebed-Melech, trust God or follow Zedekiah, whichever you like, because if he follows Zedekiah, what happens? He dies. When Jesus said, count the cost, he meant, he said, understand what you're getting into. Know what it really means to trust me. Because you see, to trust me doesn't simply mean that you know the facts of me, and you say, yes, those facts are true. James would say even the demons believe that far. That's belief to them. They know the facts about Jesus. They know that he's the son of God. They know that he's the savior of sinners. They know that he's come to live a perfect life to represent those who would believe in him. They know that he come to die for the sins of those who would believe in him. They know that he's ruling and reigning and all of that. They know all of that, but they don't trust him. They don't rest in him. Jesus, I want you to know what it really means to trust me. You want your life Here's what it means to trust me. Don't try to save your own life. Jesus said he would save his life, would lose it. When you trust me, what you're doing is you're losing your life to me. You're placing your life in me. In fact, in that classic verse, John 3, 16, when Jesus uses the expression, 
And John translates it, no doubt, from Aramaic into Greek. He does it in a very specific form. When Jesus says, believe in me, he can just as well and perhaps better be translated, though it doesn't fit with our English ears very well, be translated, believe into me. Meaning, I want you to link with me. I want you to to relinquish your identity in me so that you're in me. So that whatever is true of me is true of you. That you realize that now I'm the one who holds your life. And you rest in that. You're secure in that. You say, I needn't worry because Jesus holds my life. Because I believe, I trust in him. That's what it means. And so Ebed, Melech, trusted God. It wasn't that he simply said, well, you know, God's done a few really good things over here and he's pretty powerful and here's Zedekiah. I'll go with God. He said, no, 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 no. I feel, I know that I'm secure because God holds my life. Whether he spares me or whether he doesn't. Whether he takes my life or whether he doesn't. Whether he gives my life or whether he doesn't. I'm content in I know this is Mother's Day. But this is more important. All right? I don't do Hallmark holidays. No. But moms, you're great. Love you. No. And you're sitting there going, see, no, this is Mother's Day. He read a passage from Lamentations about mothers eating their children. There aren't too many. I know some of your moms are going, no, there have been days, but... see judgment is real it's inescapable their own wisdom and strength it's only escapable if you will by trust in one who's able to endure the perfection the glory of God see the facts of it is this that God is holy And that he created us and that he owns us. He has rights over us, authority over us. He is our author. Thus, he has authority over us. And the way he defines our life is that we're to live in a way that glorifies him, that reflects him. And since we haven't, since we've fallen short of that glory, his glory, revealing, reflecting him, loving as he loves then we're guilty of rebellion against him. And because he is just and he is loving both, he must judge that which comes against perfection, judge which comes against love, judge which hurts that which is perfect. Because that is evil. He must judge that. And so... It's there. It's inescapable. It's by the very nature of his character. It's moral and just and right. To, to, to not do that would mean he is not God, that he's less than God. So, so what does this mean in the context of love? Well, in the wisdom of God and in the love of God and in the justice of God, he says, I'll take it. And thus as he covenants with his son, Jesus. Jesus comes. 
and lives as our representatives and representative and obeys where we haven't in every place. And he comes as our substitute and takes our sin upon himself. And that's the fact of it. And we can acquiesce to that and we can acknowledge that and we can say, yes, I believe that's true. But do but you trust that? That's the real question. That's what it all comes down to. Do you trust that? Do you rest in that? Have you believed into that so that you're linked to Jesus, so that your life is in him, so that you've lost your life to him, so that your life is now in him? And thus you rest in him. That's it. That's the question. When Jesus stood historically on a particular day at a particular point in time and place with his disciples to announce that at dinner at Passover. They knew some of who he was by what he had said, what he had done, and how that would match up with everything that they had read about, learned about, been taught concerning the Messiah on this day. He would bring it all together so that they would see it at the meal and see it even in his death. He said, as he took the bread that was at the table, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup that was there. And this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many. For the forgiveness of sins, do this in remembrance of me. The apostle says, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. We declare it to, to ourselves. We preach it, you see. It preaches to us about the death of, of Jesus. The question is, do I trust him? If I believed into him, have I lost my life to him? Is he now the holder of my life? If he is, you see, then he says, all right, the judgment will pass you because the judgment has already taken place in the context of your life. I'll rescue you, I'll, I'll save you, I'll give you your life for all eternity. And it's real life, it's life lived in the very presence of God because now there's nothing that separates us from him because it's all been, it's all been taken. He sees us as his righteous children to live for all eternity in his very presence and to live even now trusting him. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I belong to him. I rest in him. He says this, why would I not believe him? Why would I not obey him? And my obedience isn't to earn this life, it's been given. His obedience flows from the fact that I trust him. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us. And with the psalmist, we're able to, to know the Lord is my shepherd. My life is in his hands. He watches out from us, for me. Thus, I shall not want. And I know everything that I need will be provided for by him, even in times of difficulty and even when I have plenty. I know it comes from him. And he is my shepherd. I shall not want. He 
leads me. By the still waters, he leads me by the green pastures. He restores my soul when I'm weak. He gives me strength. For my life is in him. I trust in him. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So I know that all the places he leads me will be right paths, good paths, paths, because my life is his. So by his precepts and his promises, God, we, we trust you. Even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as ebed Melech did, God, we know that we needn't be afraid because you're with us, you're Roger staff. They comfort us. They're there to protect us and to direct us. Even when our enemies are around about us, God, we know because we trust in you that you'll provide for us, you'll set a table for us, that you'll anoint our head with oil, that, that even in the midst of great difficulty, we'll know joy because our life is in you. We know that in pursuit of us, every moment of every day is goodness and mercy. We trust you. Knowing that we'll dwell in your house all the days of our life. Today, dwelling there and for all eternity. So God, I pray that at this moment you'd set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that our trust in you would be deeper than ever before. That the reality of what is to come is brought close. The reality of what has happened in Jesus will be brought together with that so that as we trust in Jesus, that which is to come does not make us afraid. But we know that we're secure in you, both now and for all time. So take this bread and juice, Father, and use it in such a way to enable us to know this connection with Jesus, his closeness to us, our life in him, his life in us, that we can live in great assurance and great comfort, knowing what is to come. And this, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know themselves to be sinners in His sight without hope, trusting in nothing else, without hope except in His sovereign mercy, believing and depending, trusting in our Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners and a desire to live a life of trust, of trust in Jesus. If that's true for you, I invite you to come. And really, weigh this. Make sure it's really true of you. Don't come because your mom's here. <laughs> and you want to make her happy. It's not about that. Come because you really trust in Jesus. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, say to yourself, I trust in Jesus. Please come. <laughs>